O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous, and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Those are verses 10 through 12 of Psalm 97, which along with Psalm 98 are the psalms appointed for today, Tuesday, May the 18th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm John Green, and I'm your host. Thank you for being with me today. We're continuing our study in the um, prophecy of Ezekiel, also in the book of Hebrews, and then in the gospel according to Luke. And so yesterday, remember, we, we read that um, Ezekiel had been is given as a sign to the nation that it's going to be under siege and that it's going to be in exile and punished for 390 years for the northern kingdom, 40 years for the southern kingdom. And so he, he is to lie on one side and lie on the other side. And he is to basically starve himself almost to death, just barely enough to sustain his life for all that period of time with eight ounces of food and about 20 ounces of water a day for 430 days. And so now we skip forward about three chapters and we're over in Ezekiel 7 now. And the announcement is, behold, the day has come. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come. The rod has blossomed. Pride is budded. Violence has grown up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain, nor their abundance, nor their wealth. Neither shall there be any preeminence among them. In other words, you're all going to be equally impoverished. There's not one person here who's going to be considered a great citizen. Everything is going to be leveled, and it's going to be leveled to the lowest level. The time has come. The day has arrived. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, for wrath is upon all their multitude. It's a painful thing. The seller shall not return to what he has sold while they live. For the vision concerns all their multitude. That's the second time that little phrase has been used. It shall not turn back, and because of his iniquity, none can maintain his life. I mean, he's saying this is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah because at least their lot was somewhat considered righteous. Here, he says, none, all their multitude, every single one, none of them shall remain. It, it sounds more like Noah, frankly, than at the time of Noah than at any other time. He is, they blown the trumpet and made everything ready, but none goes to battle, for my wrath is upon all their multitude. The sword is without, pestilence and famine are within. He was in the field, dies by the sword. And him who is in the city, famine and pestilence devour. I mean, this is a horrible, horrible word of utter destruction. And then he says, the land is full of bloody crimes and the city is full of violence. And it does. It sounds like the days of Noah is what God's proclaiming through the prophet here. He says, and this is the worst part, right? I'll bring the worst of the nations to take possession of their houses. I mean, your sin is so bad. I'm bringing the worst of the worst. And I'm going to let them have what you have. Now, does that mean that they're worse than the worst of the worst? No, it means they're God's people. And they're failing to demonstrate His glory to the world. They're failing to lift Him up and hold Him up. They've rejected Him. They were His chosen people, and they've chosen other gods. And they've gone astray from following Him. And, and, and He's saying, no. My people can't do that. The standard for us is higher than it is for the rest of the world. And they sort of um, embrace that concept within Judaism. 
uh, through something called the Noahide Covenant. You probably have never heard of that unless you've heard me talk about it because it doesn't come up very much. But what, it, what, they, what they believe is, is that God has a covenant with them that's special, and then he has a covenant with all of creation that goes all the way back to Noah. And they believe there's half a dozen or so laws that that the the nations have to keep. And if they keep those, it's okay. You'll get a share in the world to come. Um, less is expected of you because you're not in this covenant. The covenant that they believe raises the bar so high. And what they want to do is they want to discourage people from coming into Judaism. They said, you know, here's the problem. If you come into Judaism, you're responsible for 613 laws plus a lot of other stuff. If you just stay over there where you are, you're, you're still going to participate in the life to come. But you've only got to keep a few things, pretty simple things. You know, it's not hard for you. So they, they discourage people from coming into Judaism and converting by, by saying, no, 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 you don't want to accept the whole law. The, the response we bear is far greater than what you bear, but you, and it's okay because you'll participate in the life to come anyway. So what there's what God's saying here is 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 exactly what that belief is anchored in, which is there's a higher responsibility for you than for the rest of the nations. So it's it's not that you're worse than the nations, but because you're my people, you have a peculiar responsibility, and that responsibility carries with it great benefits. And blessings, but it also carries with it that great responsibility. If you fail to carry out that responsibility and make me known in all the world, then you're going to lose everything. And he says, when anguish comes, they'll seek peace, but there won't be any. Disaster comes upon disaster, rumor upon rumor. They seek a vision from the prophet, while the law perishes from the priest and counsel from the elders. E even the leaders have failed utterly here. And, and that's what God's saying, according to their way, I will do to them, and according to their judgments, I will judge them, and they'll know that I'm the Lord. In the same way that, that the hope was, the Egyptians would know that he was the Lord through seeing the plagues. Now his people are going to have all this same stuff visited on them in a similar way to what happened to the Egyptians in the hopes that that'll get them to return. Sometimes God runs out of options for how to deal with us. You know, have you hit bottom yet? You know, you're my people. And I, I believe that he does all this in love because he wants us to return to him because that's best for us. And it's best for the world that his people turn to him and follow him and, and live according to the way he has said that we're to live. We bring blessing to the world, and that's exactly what he promised through Abraham. That if they bless you, I'll bless them. And, and here in Luke 10, in that gospel lesson, remember yesterday we had, we had seen some of these same things about judgment that John and James wanted to call down judgment on the Samaritan city that refused to accept Jesus and welcome him in that place. And so here he's going to talk about that same thing in a kind of a different way, he's going to send out the 72 disciples. He sends all those out ahead of him into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And their, their job was to go and proclaim the coming of the kingdom. And the kingdom was coming in the form of Jesus, in the form of the king, in the form of God incarnate, the Messiah. And he says, now go ahead. Go on ahead of me. Pray to the Lord of the harvest, because the harvest is plentiful, for laborers for the harvest. And I think that 
that what we need to do is, as far as church growth is concerned is we need to be praying for laborers for the harvest, not just members who will come and sit and listen and give money. No, we need laborers for the harvest to come into the kingdom. And, and if we are about laboring for the coming of the kingdom, then they will be. If we congregate, so will the people who come. And that's important for us to see the distinction between those two things. A.W. Tozer talked about that. He said, you know, I've seen this happen again and again. Somebody in the congregation will get all fired up. They'll get hit by the Holy Spirit. They'll get filled up, and they'll be passionate about doing something. And, and the congregation, the rest of them, have been asleep. Now, this person who is alive among them and awake among them is, is sort of a problem, because you've wakened us from our slumbers and you're a troublesome person because you um, are awake and alive and we'd like you to be like us. And so what he said that typically happens is they do one of two things. They send him off to seminary and say, here you go, lead a church, or they send him into the mission field. The church doesn't know actually what to do with people who are alive and on fire. In way too many cases, I can remember 30 years ago, whatever it was, uh, uh, I got touched by the Lord and just set on fire. And I had a, I went to a, uh, we had supper clubs and I went to a supper club and this, this guy was there who, like me, was absolutely on fire. And so we wanted to do something. We, we, were, we were ready to go and do things. And he went to one of our priests and said, um, here's where we are. I don't know. I mean, he was just excited about the future and about the possibilities and about the kingdom and about the gospel. And the priest looked at him, and he was a good man. I'm not saying anything bad about him, but he looked at him and he says, I remember when I was like that. Hmm. So didn't know what to do with him. Didn't know what to do with either one of us. So it, 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 it's something that we've got to be careful about, that we're not praying just for the growth of the church. We want laborers for the harvest because we believe that the harvest is indeed plentiful, just as Jesus said. And so we want to pray for laborers, not congregants. And then he sends them out, right? I mean, he takes these 72, he says, go. Go on ahead of me. I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Don't carry any money. Don't carry a backpack. Don't take an extra pair of sandals. Greet no one on the road. In other words, set your face in the same way that I've set my face to Jerusalem. And then he says, whenever you go into a house, say, peace be to this house. And if there is a son of peace there, then your peace will rest on him. But if not, it'll return to you and remain there in that same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. And don't go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what's set before you. Heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they don't receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of the town that clings to our feet we wipe against you. It's a curse. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. So in the, in the previous case, he, he had said um, to heal the sick in it and say the kingdom of God has come near. Here, they're not supposed to even heal the sick. If the town won't receive you, then they're not to do any work among them, but to also tell them the, the kingdom has come near to you whether you received it or recognized it or not. There'll be no sign to you because you rejected it before you saw a sign. You rejected it outright. And so then he says this judgment piece comes in. He says, I'll tell you, it'll be more bearable for Sodom on judgment day than that town. Woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, which are 
um, Jewish towns. The mighty works that done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which are pagan towns. They would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it'll be more bearable in judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, which is where he did tons of ministry, will you be exalted to heaven? Nope, you'll be brought down to Hades. I mean, it's a painful thing. And, and, and he's saying, don't take it personally. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. Simple as that. They come back after doing this, and they are filled with joy. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. You know, he sent us out, and he sends us out to proclaim the coming of the kingdom. He sends us out to do the works that he's given us to do. And, and Paul says that when his proclamation in Corinth particularly, he said it didn't come with eloquence. Nope, I preached a very simple message among you, but that message and the proclamation of that message was accompanied with power, which is to say that people were healed and the Holy Spirit showed up and did things. And, and so Paul says that's the proof of this. And so... Uh, in Pauly's Island, when we were there, we saw that proof. The proclamation was solid, and then the proof was abundant because we saw people healed. We saw incredible miracles happening. And, and right now, I'm seeing that in my own life with Will and God's healing of him and his restoration of him. And, and, and I needed to see that. I needed to see it in my own life so that I would go out and proclaim with boldness and pray with boldness. And, and that's the point of the writer of Hebrews in our lesson for today God made a promise to Abraham since no one since he had nobody greater by whom to swear he swore by himself saying surely I will bless you and multiply you count on it surely I will do this so he's swearing an oath and and when he did it he passed through the I mean, this was the smoking pot that passed through the divided animal sacrifices is when this happens. And then Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. Waiting patiently is hardly anybody's forte that I know. It's certainly not my forte. But sometimes we don't have any choice. We get put into places where we can't do anything. Our best efforts don't yield anything at all. And it's at that point that God steps in and says, all right, have you lost hope in yourself? Have you lost hope in every solution that you've cooked up? If you have, then, then you're ready. You're ready for me to step in and do what we want. And so he's speaking of this, this swearing thing, this oath-taking thing. And he says God took an oath with Abraham, and he's taken an oath with us. He wanted to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. And he guaranteed it with, with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us. So the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the ascension of Jesus to heaven, pleading for us, making intercession for us before the throne of God, it, it is all we need. We have everything we need to have assurance and confidence as we go forth and do the work that he's given us to do, which is the proclamation of the gospel, the making of disciples, and teaching them to obey everything that he commanded. And he says, you don't have anything to worry about. You don't need to be concerned about whether or not his sacrifice was sufficient. Just because he hasn't come again yet, and you thought he would, is no reason to lose heart or lose faith because of the resurrection. He says, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, 
a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain into the holy of holies in the tabernacle. Jesus has gone as forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He says, you don't need anything else. You can't get any further assurance. There's nothing that would guarantee this and give you confidence more than the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. You've got everything you need. Now get busy and do the work that you were given to do until his return.